Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Micah, welcome back to the Undraped Artist Podcast. I'm very excited to be here. This is my favorite time of year, and we get to talk about some cool stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I'm stoked. So I've been playing Christmas music for a week now, and I actually was <laughs> I was actually gonna like put like mistletoe over our heads and everything else just to celebrate this an awesome episode we're gonna have. But maybe I'll do that in post. <laughs> you but, know what? I've been listening to uh, this. This fantastic, I can't remember the author off the top of my head. It's on Audible, and it's a two-and-a-half-hour history of the celebration of Christmas. Mm -hmm. And really um, about how most of the traditions we have nowadays, at least in the United States and Europe, are only from the mid-19th century. They're only about 150 years old. Some vestiges, like trees and other things, but even most of the carols we sing are from... Um, non-Christmas traditions that people put Christmas words to in the 1850s, 60s, 70s. And that's going to be true of art we talk about today because well, there's a lot Santa of Claus, art. Even my, my parents were the first generation to have Santa Claus, even if I'm correct, which is so oh, weird yeah, I mean, to me. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, but you're not, you're not, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. It's, it's really interesting how much um, Christmas was invented fairly recently. I mean, one of the things that blew me away in this history is you know those Advent calendars. Yeah, yeah, we have one. So Advent, Advent calendars, and I love them. I've got like five different Advent calendars because I like sweets. Some of them aren't sweet related. Wait, though, what? Right? Sweets? No, I thought you meant yes. the ones where you you take you take the little, I don't know, what do you call it? Like the little symbol, maybe it's a Christmas tree and you, or the ornament and you take it out of the pocket and you put it on the Christmas tree. And yeah, I mean, all of them, all, all of those are Advent and you get calendars. to the Christmas day. Is that an Advent calendar? The Advent calendar basically refers to Advent, which used to be a religious celebration. that was 24 days leading up to Christmas where you denied yourself food, um, liquor, um, sex, um dairy um including cheese sugar and so it was a it, oh, that's a and then you'd holiday. have the then you would have the 12 days of christmas which were an all-out riotous raucous um, debased party <laughs> of like of all the things you wanted to do right okay and so it's it's interesting how like even things like the advent calendar as i was listening to this history i was thinking Man, like the art that we use to celebrate Christmas really was, I, I think it's going to fit into kind of two categories. It's going to fit into the the modern era of everything we're familiar with. And then some of it is going to fit into that ultra-religious um, era of, of, uh, of, of denying yourself things and celebrating the heavy side. So I've picked things from both sides of that. And... Okay. Uh, did you bring any art too? 
Oh, was I forgot I was supposed to bring art. You don't have to. Wait you a minute. To. Wait I've a got minute. enough for both of us. Oh, do you? Okay. I totally spaced it. Part of me wants to stop I've and grab some art. Should I stop and grab some art or should we keep going? No, if you want, if you want to, but I've got enough for both of us. Okay. All right. Let's just go with yours today. Maybe next, next okay. Christmas. Okay. I'm going to bring some. Okay. So put up my number one image. Okay. Yeah, you recognize this, buddy? Okay. Well, I recognize, recognize the this? figure, but I don't know okay. who the artist is. Okay. Do you see what he's holding in his right hand? Oh, yeah, Coca-Cola. So this is the this is this the is... original, not the original, but this is the first time that the red suit was introduced. Kind of. Okay. So I had to look this up because there is a lot of there are a lot of people who've written about the subject, right? So Hayden Sundblom, who was born in Michigan to Northern, to Scandinavian parents, he was born in 1899. He goes and studies at the American Art Academy in Chicago, which was essentially a, um, a hybrid of the French model and commercial art. It was founded in 1923. And, um, you know, I don't even know if, I don't even recognize the names of the artists who helped found it, but I was going to their their website. By the way, Kanye West is one of their alumnus alumni. Really? <laughs> yeah, because they they're the American Academy of Art. They call it the American Academy of Art College now. Does all kinds of different artistic endeavors, but in the 1920s, it was started by this artist named Frank Young, and I'm looking it up right now. And um, and and Frank Young was really the artist. And he had studied in Paris. There isn't a lot of information on him. And he's got artists doing everything from nude drawing classes to um, clothing design and drapery to lithographic, to lino cuts, to all kinds of things. Like these, these students are graduating after four years with the expectation that they will be clothing designers, um, magazine illustrators and cover artists, portrait artists, and um, that they'll be doing industrial design. Like even if, if they go to an engineer who says, I've got a design for an engine, a graduate of this school is supposed to be able to do an artistic rendering of the engine, right? I mean, this is, this is a very broad group of skills. Hmm. Sundblom graduates he um, works for a few years and he does everything from like magazine illustrations for boys life to pinup girls. He does a lot of pinup girls. And then in 1931, Coca-Cola commissions him to do Santa Claus. So I don't know what year this Santa is from, but before we talk about who inspired him, let's just, I want a portraitist perspective on how good this is. I'm geeking out over this thing. Don't you like Zoom, it? I, I, I love it. Go! I went it's into a so high resolution. I this, tried to go to a high resolution version. Yeah, this is you know you look at the way the beard is both painted positively, meaning he's painting the beard itself and making strokes that represent hair, but then he's cutting into it with the negative space, bringing that red oh, into it. It kind of reminds me of Josh Clare's clouds the way oh, he's painting that beard. I wonder if um, there's some connection there, if there's some influence 
maybe not directly, but yeah, it's just, look, it's gorgeous. Look, the color is beautiful. It's, I mean, it's, just, yeah, it's gorgeous. It, and, and he's got this, it's almost got this, um, Dutch golden age element of this minimalist background that you could say is like a Franz Halls or a Rembrandt. And then all the warm colors in front of that, that are not really Dutch. I mean, Dutch colors would be a lot more restrained than this. Like I'm surprised at how hot it is. And then he's got these cool highlights throughout it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah, kind of magical, really isn't it? Or the rim lighting. Yeah. Yeah. The skin is just orange. It's, it almost looks like he's being lit by a fireplace and then, uh, well, and then maybe window light for rim light behind him. It, it gives it this really warm, festive quality to it. It's really so well thought out. He paints this in 1931, right? But he himself says that his inspiration is another artist who at the time that Christmas cards were becoming popular in the 19th century, the first Christmas cards didn't really happen until like the 1860s. And the woman who is largely in charge of those Christmas cards is named Jenny Nystrom. It, she's mostly Christmas cards in Sweden. This is what she's famous for. So go to the next image, because this is a, this is a Christmas card by Jenny Nystrom. Okay. Hmm. Here is what is super frustrating about what we're looking at here. I'm just going to read you from her Wikipedia page, Jenny Nystrom. Okay. She studied, she, in 1865, she start, started at the Gothenburg Art School. Um, in 1873, she was admitted to the Royal Academy of uh, Swedish Arts in Stockholm, where she studied for eight years. Then she followed that with studies in Paris at the Academy Calarossi and the Academy Julienne. She studied with Bouguereau and with Jules Lefebvre. So she comes back having done almost 12 years of studies at some of the best schools in the world. And the only place she can find a commercial or, or any monetary real application for her art are in sicky, sweet kind of Christmas cards, we would probably call them today, that are over, that are cartoonish. Um, but, you know, I, there are a few images, I was only able to find a few images of her paintings. Um, they weren't high resolution enough mm. to share with you. She had some serious chops, but this is what she became famous for. And they were first reproduced in Sweden, and this is a Swedish version of Santa Claus that's in the red cap, long beard, the gloves, and then Hayden Sundblom, whose family is from Sweden and and uh, and Norway, bring her image into his life, and then he adapts it in the thirties. So wait, what do you mean? To most he scholars, adapts this. He adopts this. I'm sorry. He adapts the. Yeah, there's Santa so Claus? many versions. This and or she this did actual several painting. different. Not this actual one, but her version of Santa Claus. And there are a lot of different okay. versions that she did that are, that are all pretty much this guy who's in a heavy red velvet um, um, coat that's trimmed with fur that has a belt and a hat and mm. it has a long beard. 
he's kind of like a large elf in her versions of of uh, of of Christmas, and he takes that. And the crazy thing was, Jeff, I read like five or six different articles about the origins of Santa Claus and the the modern version of Santa Claus. Half of them talk about just Sundblom's version. About half of them talk about Sunblond being influenced by Nystrom. None of them mention the next artist. Okay, before we move on from Nystrom, though, first of all, I got a question yeah. for you. Did you read those articles for the podcast? Yeah, I did. Dude, okay. All of you listeners of the podcast need to reach out to Micah and give him some gratitude for Christmas because <laughs> for crying out loud, he's getting nothing for this podcast and he read all those articles. And, and well, I am getting Christmas he cheer. He's the out busiest of this guy I know. So thank you, Micah. <laughs> so That's nice really you. generous of you to do that. But the other thing I You're wanted welcome. to ask you about was do you have any evidence of her classical training? Do you have you seen any paintings of, of yeah, what I have her classical them. work looks like? I've seen just like one or two. The problem is is that almost everything she does seems to be controlled by the printing companies. And I don't know if they're getting another artist who's putting them into lithographic form because she seems to paint in oils and then somebody else transfers them into a different medium. Well, what and I so want to know, I, I got what I, I get the sense that a lot of her training gets lost in that. Okay. So what I want to know is if the way she's painting is a stylistic choice or if, or if it's not, I mean, because I had a student, her name was Brooke Smart. I, I, Brooke, you're going to have to forgive me. I don't know your new married name. I forgot. But do you mind if I pull her up real quick, Micah? Not at all. Because uh, I just wanted to show you this real quick. So let me pull up Instagram. Oh my gosh, how funny is that? She's the first one to come up. So her name still oh, is Brooke is Smart. Oh man, okay. Google's, Google's watching me. Um. Okay, so I got it right. She's still yeah, yeah. going by Brooke Smart. So I guess I don't need forgiveness after all. So Brooke is an amazing artist. She was my assistant and student, geez, like 17 years ago. And um, she is an incredible classical painter. She could paint anything, but this is what yeah. she chooses to do. She's not in, she does these incredible mur murals like this up the oh, staircase wow. is wow. cool she's got murals all so over cool. salt lake city all over salt lake city but then she does cards and uh she just did these really so, cool i should get her on the show there there is no doubt that nystrom is doing the same kind of thing she is the christmas card craze of the 19th century is a mm -hmm. real thing like people and it's we could go on a tangent that is would be so satisfying here there are christmas cards with dead bugs on them christmas cards with people who are nude making their bodies into the shapes of the alphabet saying merry christmas there are the weirdest and coolest christmas cards but nystrom makes almost all her money doing these these really um family small children elf type things where it doesn't look anything like her classical work, in my opinion. And I'm not an expert on her, but as I was looking it up, I thought, huh, if you were to put her work in a lineup and say, which one of these artists trained with 
Jules Lefebvre and Bouguereau, she would not end up on the list, right? Oh, no way. Yeah, and you wouldn't think that of Brooke no Smart way. either. No, but she was so influential Yeah, that, that uh, because her cards became the basis for how a lot of those people who moved in, you got to think like he's from Sundblom who painted the Coca-Cola um, Santa Claus. That he was from Michigan and almost all of Michigan was, was founded by Scandinavian people. So they brought with them all of that Scandinavian imagery to their version of Christmas hmm. and in the great lakes area. And then when he graduates from Chicago, also in the Great Lakes, and gets hired by Coca-Cola, he spreads the Scandinavian version to the rest of America in the biggest way possible. However, and this is the part that as a scholar, I'm now like, this is going to be my mission if we do another Christmas show, buddy. Go to the next image. Okay. No one mentions the, him in the Sundblom articles. No one mentions lion decker mm -hmm. and lion decker if you're man if you're a painter of of figurative art in in uh, our generation and we've been going through this great revival of figurative art education people almost every artist i know knows rockwell knows lion decker mm -hmm. right and lion decker if sundblom is painting in 1931 his first santa claus and Nystrom is painting 1870s to 90s. Lion Decker's painting Santa Claus from 1895 to the 1920s. He's in the in between the two of them, and he's doing them for covers of the Saturday Evening Post. Wait, so he's and in red. This is this is before Coca Cola. Yeah. No, this oh. is for this, this. This is his own thing. I mean, he's doing this for wait, the wait, Saturday no evening or yes. post. This is this is before Coca Cola. This isn't red because this of Coca Cola. This is before Coca Cola. Before Coca Cola. So before I thought Coca Cola was the reason for the red Santa Claus. I'm confused too because every, almost everything that I read out of like the, the 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 I read about eight articles. Half of them mention Sundblom as being the originator. The other half mentioned Sumblon as being the popularizer of what Nystrom did in Sweden. None of the eight articles mentioned Leyendecker. And they're all talking about what? the popularization of Santa Claus. And I'm and I'm thinking to myself, but wait, like Leyendecker was was famous in his day for all of his magazine covers. And um there's he's not making these in secret. You know, these. This was a cover of a. Oh, it's a national a, magazine. Of a, of a national magazine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's weird. I literally just Here's listened to a podcast like a few months ago about this, and they said, like I'd said earlier in the podcast, that the Santa Claus as we know it was came out of the '30s, when my father was born, 1945, which tripped me out. I'm like, well, you mean my grandfather didn't know the red and white Santa Claus? And you're, but I mean, that be, may not be, be true. To be fair, to be fair, this is not that much earlier. I mean, it's thirty years earlier, but it's not that much earlier, right? It's kind of a big, yeah. But still, the credits in the wrong place. It sounds okay. Like. Can we take a moment and talk about Lion Decker and what we think about him? Yeah, sure. I want to. I want. Let's let's. Can we zoom in a little bit on this Absolutely. guy? Make him a little bigger. How close do you want to go? 
I don't care. It's not close. You want to go. I just want to hear you talk about what you think about Liondecker. Well, I mean, I, I, I absolutely think he's a brilliant illustrator, brilliant painter. Is he my favorite painter? No. I mean, he's a little more stylized than I tend to like. So yeah. I, he's not yeah. one of my favorite painters, but that's just personal taste. But he's clearly got chops. I mean, he's clearly an incredible technician. And he, I mean, I, I don't know. I have nothing negative to say about him. You know, I'm, I, I've always admired and loved his work, but I don't, I haven't really known a lot about his biography and I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that. And, and I, I read a little bit about it as I was, as I was, uh, coming up on, on this podcast and thinking, okay, I should, I should at least know some of the broad sketches. So he, he grows up in Chicago, just like Sundblom does. He's, you know, 50 years older than Sundblom, but Liondecker had a completely commercial background. And this is what I mean by that. This is, this is a topic for another podcast, but it's something that to me goes to the root of the environment that we live in today as artists who are, who are uh, trying to figure out where they fit in the world of digital modernism, um, illustration, fine art. Um, if you were living at the end of the 19th century, um, more people were reading um, and they were, and magazines started to become a bigger deal. And um, artists who were filling those magazines were, ten, were, were generally classically trained. They had gone to the French Academy or another version of the French Academy, a, a school that had adopted the French curriculum, essentially, of studying from the nude. They were looking at classical statues. They were, they were um, adopting all of the trappings of a classical education, but they were adopting those to a world of fashion illustration, magazine illustration, and... Um, some people were ridiculed for that. Lion Decker was uh, was surely in that group where there at his time there started to emerge people who didn't see him as a serious artist and who didn't see subsequent artists like or even his contemporaries like N.C. Wyatt or um, uh, uh, um, uh, gosh, some of these names are my brain is, is swimming right now. You've got later Rockwell. You've got even a later generation than that. Um, Harry Anderson and Tom Lovell, a lot of these artists had real serious chops, but they were seen as illustrators or commercial artists, right? And that didn't exist very clearly in these beginning years when Nystrom and Liondecker are working. Um, Liondecker was still producing um, portraits and some fine art for people for their homes, but he didn't see any shame in dedicating himself entirely to commercial purposes and see that as a contradiction of being a fine artist. Some people who are listening to the podcast may, may, um, may question that characterization because it, this, it wasn't until world war one, maybe 10 or 15 years after this image, mm -hmm. when the art world becomes, much more modernist, and then they start reevaluating who fits into which camp. Um, but when this image is made, he's he's mostly commercially trained. As I was looking up his biography, 
he's going to commercial schools and he is not really like he's he's largely self-taught from what i understand in doing the human figure he's not studying in new drawing classes at ateliers or fine art schools that's one of the things that i think makes him so interesting and original mm -hmm. is that he's almost a purebred graphic artist who knows that almost all his works are destined to be seen not as paintings but he's doing them anyway with paint from models that he's heavily manipulating yeah right and um he's getting respect at least initially from fine artists but i you know this is something i'd like to investigate more if you go to um there's a museum in Stockton, California, um, that has uh, a lot of his works. And they recently published a catalog on him. And they talk a lot more about his process. Hmm. Um, I don't, I, even looking at this, it's pretty clear that he had a huge influence on Rockwell. We know this. This isn't a surprise to anybody who's listening to this. But we know a lot more about Rockwell than we do about Decker. A lot more about Rockwell. Yeah. Do you know if this Rockwell is painted in autobiography? Oil? I'm sorry. Do you do you know if this no, is uh, painted in oil or gouache or casein? Yeah, this this is the original oil. Oh, it I'm is oil. This is the original oil. Okay. Yeah, and the, I look at the background; it almost looks like it could be gouache or something. The white is so transparent. It could be um, gouache. I on the background. I Maybe all it's mixed I could medium. find was. All I could find on this was private collection, and um, it just said oil, oh, and it it's got oil. a little dedication okay. in the bottom left that he added after it had gone to the magazine. So this, the, the version, this, this is the original oil that was given to a friend. Hmm. You know, one of the reasons we don't know a lot about Lion Decker, as far as I understand it, is that he was gay, mm -hmm. and um, and he was very private as a result of it. And so there's a lot that was probably lost because of that stigma that he felt at the time that he couldn't be very open about, you know, his life in general. So he didn't write an autobiography like Rockwell did. Right. You know, he was That's pretty unfortunate. quiet. It's too bad. Yeah. Okay. Next, next Christmas image. Huh. Okay. I would be, I'm going to be shocked if you, um, guess who this is. Um, I'm going to give you, I'm going to okay. give you, you, I'm going to give you some hints. You'd be shocked you if know I guess what any artist, was, who any artist was, you know, me, my lack of you education. You know this artist very, you know this artist very well, Jeff. No, I you don't. You know him very well. You do. He's a, he's a turn of the century artist. You're not used to seeing his oil paintings, okay, even give me though a you've minute. seen his oil paintings. Can you give me a hint? Um, he did a lot of graphic work. It's not a great hint. I have no idea. I'll give idea. you another one. Okay. He worked in Paris, but he wasn't from Paris. Yeah, I have no idea. He was from, he was from, uh, Prague in, che in the Czech Republic. <laughs> you're just, you're just reinforcing my, the reality that I'm incredibly uneducated. So no, just no, tell no, me no, who no, it no. is. You're going to know the moment I tell you. Okay. He painted this on his final and ninth trip to the United States as an artist. This is Alphonse Mucha. Oh my gosh. Of course. You knew who I, you I knew you'd know who he was. 
Really? So he was, he, this isn't a private collection. It's an oil on canvas. It's about um, 36 by 24 from what I understand. I haven't seen it in person and it's titled the spirit of Christmas. He did it in, uh, I think, 1920s. And um, it's, uh, it's, if anybody has ever seen reproductions of his Slav epic, where he does a lot of his, um, his, his very symbolist uh, oil paintings mm -hmm. that are, they're, they're, gosh, they're haunting. They're just beautifully painted. This looks like that. It doesn't look like his graphic work. Um, this piece, I was shocked when I, I when somebody shared it with me years ago. Um, but there are some things I wanted to point out that are very old school in in this Alphonse Mucha. Can we zero in on her face and that hand? Yeah, I kind of want to. For the have viewers who don't know Alphonse Mucha's work, I mean, I'm sure we have some viewers who don't. It'd be interesting to compare. Did you have uh, another image by any chance? No, but if you go onto Google right now and just type in Alphonse Mucha, he's really kind of famous for this Art Nouveau style, which was mostly seen in God, posters. So cool. And um, his style of Art Nouveau took over Paris, it took over Brussels, it took over um, Chicago, New York, um, for the 1890s to the night to, to 1910 until another style took over. He was really famous for, I think almost everybody is familiar with this style, this Art Nouveau style. Yeah. Was here's another and so one. When you, there's another painting. He was yeah. a beautiful oil painter and his graphic work as a poster maker is more famous than his painting work. But this is what I want you to do. Go back to Google okay. and type in um, Slav Epic after his name. Just just keep his name there. Um, oh. Or just put Slav, um, Alphonse Mucha, Slav, S-L-A-V, Epic. Okay. Now, look at the image of the, your right to the right of where your hand just was, where your mouse was, of how big these images are. You've got people standing in front of a... Three three pieces right there. These are like um, oh my ten or gosh. twelve feet tall, and they're twenty five feet long, and they're multifigural um, works that were largely not seen by the public from when he painted them um, in the nineteen twenties until the until the year two thousand. About there's about eighty years where they weren't seen. Czechoslovakia had a really rough run during World War Two, and then the during the the Russian occupation, it's amazing they were preserved at all. But this is this is the kind of thing that when we look at at, at his work as a painter is most comparable to the spirit of Christmas that I sent you as mm -hmm. an image. It gives you an idea of what his figurative work was like and how he he was trained as a figurative fine artist in oil. And wow. um, before before he was famous for his poster work, he was known mostly for his portraits. Hmm. Why did he go over to the poster work? Do you know? I you know it's I think it would have been very hard to not do so. You're if you were an artist who was trained like he was by these great monumental history painters of 
you know, religious, basically giant wallpaper kinds of paintings, his teachers were largely paid for by the state. Like if you're working for the Czech government or the French government, you're on salary as a painter who's either doing monumental projects like this or you're teaching in the schools. And then in the 1870s, um, because of electric lighting um, and gas lighting and cheap lighting that came from whale oil, sounds mm -hmm. crazy, but it's true. The general public can afford to read at night when it's dark. And so they start buying magazines and they start buying books and they want them to be graphic. And so, um, and, the, and also um, the governments don't have as much money as they did before. The shift of patronage goes from government patronage of artists to commercial everyday people buying artists work. And so the best way to make money is to either paint for wealthy merchants portraits and things that fit over mantelpieces in their, in their homes or to paint for the print market for everyday people who are buying magazines and having book illustrations. So I mean, he's, he's straddling both those worlds and he, he does this project at the end of his life without really any audience in mind other than his own people. He's wealthy at this point and he decides, I want my legacy to be these monumental, huge works. We should dedicate a show to Mucha's slave epic. I would love that. These are unbelievable. This is my dream to do something like this, something this grand. So amazing. There, I have never, I've only seen one image from the Slav ethic. It's the one right down from your mouse. I saw this one in person um, of the patriarchs of the, uh, of the Eastern Orthodox Church. There's more to it than that, but it's huge. And you can see how ambitious it is how ambitious it is it's this multi-figural piece in an architectural setting and it's got a narrative about the uh, the slav epic is half about the conversion of eastern europe and half about the national story of the the history of the slavic people um not just the religious side of of their story and We'll talk about it in another episode. I need to do more homework on it, obviously. But now go back to the spirit of Christmas that I sent you, that he did. Whoops. There we go. <clears throat> so one of the things that I find we're not used to seeing in portrait, of work to, portrait work today that was very common in the 19th century and earlier was this choice to make hands so much bigger, bigger in portraits. It wasn't that artists didn't know this, that, that the hand, I mean, look at how big her palm is in comparison to her face. Yeah, it I was didn't a even choice notice. that was, it's a choice that was taught in the academies that it looked strange if a hand was its actual proportion. And so they deliberately enlarged it and made shapes with the fingers that would elongate fingers to make them more gestural and elegant. No kidding. And Mucha, Mucha's one of the last people who I've seen painting in this style up until the past the turn of the century. So he's not as influenced by, by photography in his time as he is from a very classical French education of enlarging for gesture and elegance sake. Hmm. The, the the size of the hand. And the moment it's pointed out to somebody, 
it tends to bother them if they're from the modern age. But if it's not pointed out to you, most people don't mention, don't notice it at all. Yeah, I didn't even notice it. This episode is brought to you in part by Rosemary Brushes. If you're one of my listeners who's a professional artist, you're already using Rosemary Brushes. But for the rest of you, come on, take your work a little more seriously. Stop buying the other brands. It's just not worth it. Every now and then you may get lucky and buy a good brush from another brand, but use the brand that professionals like myself are using go to rosemaryandco.com link in the description or the show notes and get yourself some quality brushes before your next painting you know what's crazy about this whole hand thing in mm -hmm. i'm doing my family portrait right now and once again this happens to me all the time where i'll paint a hand on a figure and i know it's right I mean, I'm sure of it. I'll check it, check it, check it. I know it's right, but it feels small. And I've had that happen my entire career. And so a lot of times, just instinctually, I've leaned toward when in doubt, make it bigger. And that's this, just been instinctual. You are naturally... <laughs> it's just weird. That's really... It goes all the way back to the first art schools in Italy... At, in the late 1500s, they start these rules of telling students that if you're going to um, paint a hand or sculpt a hand, it should be anywhere between 15 and 30% larger than it is. They didn't use percentages, they use different comparisons. And again, they're not after naturalism. One of the things that people like about Art Nouveau style, which he helped pioneer with those posters, is how organic it is. And people confuse something being organic with being natural. He was anything but natural. Even looking at this image, look at how designed and graphic the, 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 that fabric is around her body, mm -hmm. the way the hand is, the fingers are placed on her chest. I call them ballet hands when I sometimes talk about them because she's got them like, I can't even curl my finger properly in that way that she's got her mm -hmm. ring finger curled and the two separated. And then the other hand, which is at this weird, like almost hmm. right angle. And then the fingers are put in this, this very um, like impossible position. I literally can't do that so... with my pinky. I guess I if can't there's do weight either. on you it, know... I guess if there's weight on it, but that doesn't look like a very heavy ornament. Maybe. So the, the overall goal of him is not to be accurate at all. It's all about a beautiful shape and design of everything. Mm -hmm. So the hand, the reason why the hand works and why we don't really notice it unless it's pointed out usually is because he, he knew that, that that part of the wrist drew, draws you into the interior of her I mean, it immediately goes into shadow after you hit that highlight on her wrist, right? Mm -hmm. And it pulls it into her body and it gives depth where there isn't normally depth with the hand in front of it. It's a beautiful little touch. Yeah. By and a very it does mature feel big artist. if you stare at it, but at the same time, you say that they're not after naturalism and I'm not, I don't disagree with you. But if, if I think about my experience, I am after naturalism. And yet mm -hmm. my experience has been that instinctually on a two-dimensional surface, 
an accurate hand doesn't feel naturalistic. Yeah. And uh, so yeah. I wonder, I, I'd, I'd be curious, and I know we, you don't know this, and, and maybe there's no way of knowing it, but I, I'd, be, I'd be really interested in knowing what the root of that is, who the first one that came up with this idea that larger hands work better and why if it was if it was more of an instinctual thing that kind yeah. of evolved into a general practice into a role? yeah hmm. um, okay that's yeah. the assignment accepted i will try and find out <laughs> that's three podcasts we came up with already man yeah, yeah. we gotta back, write this stuff down back up on the image a little bit so we can see the overall okay. shape once okay. again because i think the overall shape is to me what sells this image it's just so is this supposed to be snow or is this an abstract I don't element know. i this little i don't know i mean it's it was painted for an american he's got obviously got her in an eastern european czech dress he's got this evergreen crown on her he's got an apple bells a candle um i haven't i've i only found one person who commented on it and the only thing they said is that it was definitely painted in America for an American on Mucha's last trip to America. And, and uh, you know, to me, one of the things that's fascinating about it is that this is when he's, he's living in the world of Decker, Rockwell, and others by this point. This is the 1920s, almost 1930s. And he's painting his version of Christmas after already being very, very famous for his graphic work. And um, this is, he's not expecting this to be reproduced. It's for one person. I don't know if it's a portrait of the patron's, you know, kid or wife or what, hmm. but he's, he's doing a very, if you put this next to Lion Decker or Sundblom, which are the popular images of very, um, colorful, bright images of Christmas, which dominate the, the America at this time. This is a very subtle, I would even say sophisticated or mature palette. Oh yeah, this is very it's very elegant. So the reason it's, I ask if this is snow, the, well, my follow-up question is, what was the date of this? When was it painted? I got the date of 1920 something. I'm gonna have to look it up, but it's the twenties. Okay. Cause it feels to me it like you, like a photograph of a person in the snow would look where you have these big oh. snowflakes in the foreground that that's not the way you yeah. would perceive them from life. You're not going to focus on the big snowflakes in the foreground. You're not going to literally be able to physically focus on them. You're going to be looking at the figure, but when you take a picture of someone outside, you get these massive snowflakes right up close to mm. the lens that are kind of blurry. And I wonder, did, do you know if he worked from photography, if it's possible that this- Oh is yeah, a, it's, okay. it's, it's very well documented. He was a massive user of photography. Okay, my guess is that he used a photographic reference for this, and this was his interpretation of the snow that was in the photo. But of course, obviously we can't know I mean, that. I would, I would almost kill for a mucha and this, this mucha, like it's cool. It, it melts me. It melts me when I see it. It's really beautiful. Really beautiful. 
You know, but to the okay. you know to that photograph point, it's interesting though. Even when using photography, he's he's still following those rules of the academy with making the hands bigger. He's making major artistic decisions. Yeah, and not being slave to yeah. his reference. Assuming that is how he did it. It's incredible. No, and I I think one of the greatest things about Mucha is his design he is the greatest one of the greatest designers of paintings if you just kind of squint your eyes and you look at the shapes and the values that he comes out with in everything he does he's almost flawless in his decisions that he makes mm -hmm. he's just unbelievable unbelievable those dark those dark um locks of hair that come down and break up the the fabric in uh, on either side of that hand yeah. and kind of frame the hand the way that the shadow of that hand um and uh, goes and then the, then the the very cool the, the 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 temperature in her forearm on the one that goes to her chest the highlight of the wrist and then as it bends and it goes back and all darkens as it touches her chest i mean it's just i mean he's just well, such and a the beautiful face is these beautiful painter. dark half tones Instead oh, yeah. of focusing the yeah. light on the face, she has he has it slightly turned down, so you get these really subtle half tones, and he reserves the lights, the really bright lights, for the uh, the the dress in order to frame her face. Yeah, imagine if you were a, if you were a teacher and a student came to you and said, "Okay, the brightest parts of this painting are going to be." the edges of the fabric on the left and the top and in the bottom right almost, right? Right. And I'm gonna make her face one of the darkest parts of the whole image. And yeah, you're saying, okay, well, intuitive let's, at all. Let's it... see that, let's see that work. Let's see you make the darkest part of the whole image her face, right? And the lightest part, those areas, but. It makes me wonder genius, if it's man. not a portrait and if it, if the idea behind it is, to make it more of a picture than a record of a member of the of the patron's family that would very much be in keeping with his tradition too because he did all kinds of allegorical figures of spring of winter of of you know happiness and his images are full of just these 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 people who's we know now who the models are but they weren't famous people they were just types mm -hmm. that he chose to put in his pieces hmm. And this is called, this is titled The Spirit of Christmas. So, oh, yeah. I bet it's not a, pa a portrait of a family member. Hmm. Okay, next image. Okay. This is by an American artist who um, he paints in, he, he, he trained in New York City for a very short time, and then he goes to, uh, um, uh, to Paris at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, and he studies with a famous Ecole de Beaux-Arts painter who we don't know as much now, but at the time, his name was uh, François-Edouard Picot. A lot of, he, he's kind of a co-teacher with, with people like Cabanal and Jerome at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. So Picot is one of the major teachers at that school. And then after learning these very, um, traditional French painting techniques that were famous in the 19th century for, you know, the kinds of artists that, 
there were his contemporaries were Bouguereau, um, was a contemporary of his who was studying at the school at the same time. He goes on to Italy and he starts studying how to do murals and especially murals that are in that traditional, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Gesso on walls. Fresco. Um, fresco. He paint, he learns how to do fresco works. Mm hmm. And he comes back to the United States and does these enormous frescoes, which are in the Library of Congress. Um, hmm. And um, in fact, um, I didn't include many of them because we've just got too much to talk about. But his small works, which this isn't a tiny work, it's roughly, I think, 30 by 40. It's in the Milwaukee Museum of Art. And it's of the star that leads the, the wise men to Christ's birth in Bethlehem. That's what's happening in this image. All of his smaller works have the view of being almost giant landscape or murals, even if they're smaller. He's got a really good eye for making monumental works, even in small format. So hmm. here you've got the Star of Bethlehem, which notice it's not at the center of the painting, and it's not quite the the uh the the, the golden, golden mean but it's pretty yeah. close it's, it's pretty close right he's doing really something close. here the, <laughs> yeah. it's it's really close yeah. but he didn't put it center and he's got these clouds which are how he's decided to depict the hosts of heaven that are looking down on where the christ child you know is. that took me a solid four or five seconds to even notice that i don't know why i'm it's so a, slow it took me a few seconds too i mean it's it's one of those images where First of all, it's super original. I've never yeah. seen anything quite like it. And and I like that he didn't make it look like uh, an American Christmas. It doesn't. It looks like it could have been in the Middle East, kind of. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's it kind of looks like it could be a Western landscape too. But but he's got um he's got the olive trees. He's got the figures coming from afar. I wanted to include it in our Christmas image I really program like just it. because. He deserves more attention. He's a great artist. I love the treatment of these clouds, the warmth. It's amazing what you can get away with, with clouds and still have it feel like a landscape. I mean, once you look yeah. at it, it's all you can see. All you can see is the host of heaven. But, but like I said, it took me a solid four or five seconds. And, and when I just look at it as a whole landscape, the design of it is, is, is really great i mean it's really successful isn't it beautiful you yeah. you've got that dark foreground with the with the lines that the kind of curve towards the path that goes into the really good um disney animation still where you've got like layers on layers mm -hmm. right you've got a you've got a foreground a couple of middle grounds maybe three or four middle grounds and then a background and then he's divided it vertically into three or four sections too i mean it's just beautifully thought out well and it's a really nice handling of values because he could have easily overdone down here he has this feeling of a spotlight from the star and yet uh, he still reserved his that. lightest lights for up here and still that star yeah. just glows so he's got this feeling of brightness down here but it's actually still really dark if you compare it to the source that's really it's subtle really, value uh, handling 
Yeah, I like it's that. It's a beautiful piece. I'm, I, I wanted to share this before I share what is a really hard images that I'm about to show you. Okay. Which are the dark side of Christmas. So as we what all the... know, in the, um, in the, in this story of, uh, of, of, uh, the Christ story, he's born. And then almost immediately Joseph, who's Mary's husband is warned that <clears throat> Herod's soldiers are going to come to Bethlehem and kill any child that is, was born during the birth of that star. Right. Yeah. And scholars dispute how many children were born at that time and would have been massacred. Um, the most recent article I've been able to find, we've got Roman statistics of how many people lived in Bethlehem. So we know how many children were born during that era and it would have been between 12 and 30. That's what we think now. That's how many would have been killed. But if you were a medieval collector of saints relics, um, you one of the highest prize relics you could have bought was a, was one of the innocents, they called it, one of the bodies of the children killed by Herod's soldiers. And currently in the world, there are at least two or 300 bodies that are claimed to be the relics of these children that died. So 10 and times the, the um, actual number of children. 10 times the actual number. Mm -hmm. Just like there are like five or six John the Baptist heads. There are you know, five or six true crosses. There are three or four um, goblets from the, right. of the Holy Grail. Um, in the 18th century, in the lead up to Christmas during Advent, if you lived in Italy or in Spain, there was there were these things called sacro montes or sacred mountain journeys where you would go through the you would go to an actual mountain that had different stations that you would walk through telling the story and one of them would be the massacre of the innocents and you would have sculptors and painters working together and they were usually at this royal quality this was made for the royal family in Spain in the mid 18th century, so mid 1700s. And it had some of the best artists in Naples, Italy, which is where Ribera and Giulio Roman, sorry, Guido Reni were working, who painted these sculpted wood and then gessoed sculptures of the Massacre of the Innocents. And I've got to warn listeners and viewers that it's going to get rough, some of these images. But it was important. To, to Christians to understand how horrific these events were. So the first one we've got to zoom in on is of the women attacking one of Herod's soldiers. Go to the next image. Please tell me this so isn't your nativity scene at your house. It isn't. This is, this is the <laughs> royal family in Spain's nativity scene. So you see these women are biting the leg of the, one woman's biting the leg while she's being stabbed in the head. And another woman who's a grandmother is pulling on the on the hair while another woman and go to the next image, which is a side view of it. It's I mean, compositionally, that's pretty amazing. You got to admit that is an amazing image. The yeah. next image is the hardest one to look at, and it's of a baby that's been stabbed and the mother is still trying to breastfeed it after it's been stabbed. Oh my god. This was a huge huge part of the Christmas tradition was not just the celebration of the nativity but understanding 
the real depth of of uh, of sacrifice that happened during during this massacre of the innocents. It's oh a hard gosh, image. To that one's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. We don't we don't include this anymore in our Christmas imagery. And if you're a painter, you're taking all the skills that you've learned on canvas, and your job is to put it on on these these sculptures. And you see that you know blood's coming through the back of that child, going over the arm of the mother, and the life is draining out of it. And so his he's greener. There's a lot more burnt umber in his body than is in her warm body compared to it. It is, oh, I mean, it is hard to look at. So you said that this is the way they used to celebrate. Who is they? What cultures celebrated Christmas like this? So if, if you're Italian or Spanish, you would go through these kinds of ritual pageants where you would explore um, the the whole story of Christ um, from the Annunciation until the Resurrection as part of this. And the Massacre of the Innocents was a celebration of those whose lives were lost for Christ's sake as, hmm. as, 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 as people who lived in Bethlehem, which I think is a really beautiful story that most Protestants don't tell. Catholics still talk about this. We don't really talk about the Massacre of the Innocents, but it was part of that Christmas Sacro Monte, the Sacred Mountain tradition of, of exploring not just the beautiful, wonderful miracles, but also the great tragedies and massacres that happened. And I'm telling you, like, I think there is a human nature part that unless you do witness some of the terrible things or think about them, the, the low lows make the high highs higher, right? Absolutely. And when you see an image, if you see an image like this, you can't, it's hard to forget this image. And it's hard to forget the women attacking the soldier too, while they're trying to distract him from taking another baby, right? I mean, that's that's stuff we don't paint anymore. Wow, it's never even occurred to me when I think of Christmas, that part of the story, maybe I should be ashamed to admit this, but that part of the story never even came to my mind. But now that I, now that it's been introduced, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I, yeah, it's so obvious. Such a significant you don't need part of all feel, those babies that died. You don't need to feel bad about it. I just think it's part of I mean, this podcast and what we're doing is part of trying mm -hmm. to remind us of it, right? Yeah. It's reminding us of these part of these traditions. Okay, let's Incredible. go to I think there there may be one or two more images, but we'll go to something lighter. There we are. Okay. So as part of the tradition of of uh of the Christmas story. Um, and some people put this in the events out. I mean, it's obviously after he's born and after the wise men come. But in many traditions, like if you're a Syrian or Egyptian Coptic Christian, a huge part of the of the Christ story and of the Christmas celebration is talking about Christ coming into Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. And and just like if you're a Syrian or Coptic Christian, which is the Christians in Egypt. You have, you have your six or seven, six stations of Christ coming and the miracles he performed as a youth in in Egypt, 
which is a part we don't tell as Eastern Orthodox or as Catholic or as Protestants. This is another part of Christmas that we don't talk about a lot. And the artist who did this was a, um, he was a student of Jerome and he traveled with Jerome to the Middle East. His name was Eugene Girardet. And I owned this painting. It was a painting that was in the Paris salon and he did two versions of it. I've got both versions to share with you. This is the first version. It is a brilliant image because it's got the the temples that were built to um, the pharaohs with the sun god at the top of them, of them passing through the desert, Joseph, Mary, and the Christ child. And it's got the sun rising through the pyramids behind Christ's head to make a halo. So zero, zero in on that uh, that image by Girardet. It's on that that part of the Christ child. Yeah, so that's, I mean, and, and look at how the light is coming up between the pyramids and it's shining on them. Yeah. It's like Christ is the, Christ is the new Pharaoh. He's the new sun god. He's the new, uh, the Messiah. And Day emphasizes it with, uh, with the way that he's done that little that's, twist. That's a smart idea. It's a really good idea, isn't it? It's also a really risky now, idea because it's a, it's close to a tangent. But design-wise, where you have a line coming too close oh. to the edge of another object, but oh. it works beautifully. It's a really smart idea. Now, I don't know if you can put two images side by side, but he did a second I version of this, so. no. which okay. I like better. This is the same guy? And it's the same subject. He removes the pyramids. It is a better painting from a technical standpoint, maybe not from a compositional graphic standpoint, but zero in on the figures here. Let me just go back and forth real quick because I just want to compare those. Yeah. They're both called Flight into Egypt. Huh. Yeah, the second ones. They were much, much more. What's the word? It's more sophisticated, much more refined. Much yeah. more advanced. It feels I more mean, the, advanced. The first one is a crowd pleaser. You've got the pyramids. You've got yeah. the sun. You've got the color palette. It's it's very brash it's eye candy. and bright. I I owned both of these paintings. Okay. Oh man, um, you did. Th this one is is twice the size of the first one, and it is way more sophisticated. I'd rather own and this one. It's, I would too zero in on the figures on it. Okay. It is unbelievable. It is an unbelievable painting. I mean, so you it sold these just... to a collector? The first one went to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and is in their temple in New York City. Okay. Um, the second one, I don't know who where it's gone because it was bought by a dealer who's who is working on behalf of their client. Mm. And I don't know who that client is. Lucky client lucky client and and to me this one is i mean if if you're a viewer i can see why graphically especially if you're looking at it in a computer screen the first one is a lot more exciting this one in person is so the the, the first one's a great melody the second one is a symphony yeah. right it is just so much more going on so much more 
um, subtlety and brilliant choices and values. And really like the second one does more to share the desperation of a group of people traveling through the Egyptian desert. It's just, it's just so, even on a narrative level, the, the, the desolation of the land that they're traveling through to me on all levels, the second image does more for me. Oh man. I'm even enamored with the, what do you, I guess the sagebrush. I don't know what you call it out in the Middle East. But... I don't know what you call it either. Yeah. Oh, and the, and the values of how he's going back to that, that purplish, bluish, mauve, lilac, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's just the most delicious, subtle, incredible work of art. Yeah, beautiful and transitions I, in color in the sky from blue to green to orange. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Man, you owned that for a while. <laughs> that's awesome. The, the first image would be one that you would want to sell posters of as, or you could do in any, like a black or white, and people would love it, right? Yeah. The, the second one wouldn't work as well as a black and white image you no, have to see the original you know mm, that's beautiful isn't it just the greatest doesn't it just make like just make you happy look at that sunset or would it be sunrise i don't know i i don't know huh. i don't know man that's gorgeous oh did i jump ahead so, no this is who okay. we need to talk about next so this is a this is an artist who is almost unknown to us today. He was a contemporary of Velasquez who knew Velasquez, painted um he was not just a painter, he was also a a monk. He was a friar. And this is huge. I mean, we're talking this is almost 12 feet tall. It's of um it's what we call the the uh, the adoration. The wise men have come, and by the 17th century, when he's painted this, 1600s, it was painted in. Um, um, let me get the exact year: 1612 to 1614. He's a young man at the time. There was a tradition that there were three wise men: um, Melchior. No, who is it? Um, Melchior Baltasar. And uh, let me see if I can find the name right here. Balthasar, Mercure, and a... it'll come to me. While it'll you're thinking me about talking. it, I'm can I just point something out that's very strange yeah. about this painting? Yeah, go ahead. I have never in my life seen a painting with such mastery and at the same time so much, so, oh, well, this sounds terrible, at the same time amateur. I mean, look at that fabric. I can't, I that don't know that I've seen fabric. fabric ever painted that well in my entire life. It In person, the fabric is so mind-blowing. But then you it's look at the insane. steps that look she's on. Look at the on. steps of perspective is terrible. Well, and, and, then, and you know, And then I the think... faces are so wonky. I got to wonder how that's possible, how you could be so good at painting this and mess that up so that's interesting. I, you know, he was he was really an enigma. The Prado did a, an exhibition of his work 
and they were acknowledging how um, uneven he was. But you got to also imagine this. This is going into a church that Mm -hmm. has an architectural niche where it's mostly being seen in the dark and by candlelight. And so some of the things he's doing, like pulling those stairs out and those shadows and having that wall behind her be one thing and her sitting on a wall that's another way, are ways that he's trying to make her pop out of perspective under candlelight. And so it's not being seen in full daylight all the time. He's trying to, he's almost pasting her into an architectural niche in the context of the church. And so parts of the painting are, I mean, it's, he is aware mm. of the the skewed perspective as he's doing it. No, that's I don't think. Well, can I disagree with you on that? That's one? a well. This is where he you're where you're definitely right for sure. Okay, he's uneven in his figures. No, I mean even the perspective. Is, so you think that the perspective serves the nook that it's in? He's deliberately doing something where it's like um, if you've ever seen a Caravaggio where it's like you're looking at a table, but three or four objects look like they're falling off the table, but they're not. Yeah. That is a 17th century choice that he is living in that world where he's trying to make them fit simultaneously in the architecture of the building where the painting is installed, and he's trying to make them pop out of the architecture. So maybe... I think it's, I, guess it's I think it's a choice. That's the way it's that's the way it's been described to me. But the un- unevenness of the figures is not. The I think same you. I think art choice. historians are are very generous to artists, and I'm not speaking of you, but I mean in general. You may be right. I think yeah. art historians. I remember when I used to take art history classes, and I, even as an even as an amateur artist, I thought, is that possible that they're doing that on purpose? But let me tell you why I think he's not doing it on purpose. And it just occurred to me. Okay. Right after I said it makes no sense that he could paint this and these two blocks at the, on this, in the same painting, it just occurred to me this just happened with a student yesterday. I kid you not. Okay. So my, the order of my curriculum is we draw and, and learn how to see and see proportion and draw accurately. Then we move into full value. And then uh, we move into value and paint. But somewhere between that full value and value and paint, depending on the students, individual students and their strengths and weaknesses, will often incorporate perspective in that general area. With this particular student, she just started in value. And she's really not just started. She's been doing it for about a year or so. So she's a little ways into it, actually. She's very, very good at it. And she rendered this beautiful skull. Like it is, I couldn't do better myself. And it's, and it's sitting on a block, like a little crate. It looks like a little milk crate, but miniature. It must have had, I don't know, berries or something in it set upside down with the skull on top. I went up, I went to critique it and everything was pristine. The sheet that was draped over was pristine. Everything was pristine except all the angles on or many of the angles on the crate on the crate were way off and she's never had any education in perspective and i pointed them out and it took her a minute to recognize i had to explain how certain angles recede and this these angles how it's two-point perspective and these recede to this vanishing point and these recede to that 
and she generally didn't know that because we hadn't talked about it. Mm. And uh, perhaps that's a problem with my curriculum, but I honestly think that that personally, that that's might be what's going on here where this student has been trained in rendering form, but never taught one or two point perspective. And you may be right. I'm maybe, not going to contradict you. Well, it, I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. My explanation is a very tortured explanation for why it happened. Yours is a much straight, more straightforward explanation. Yeah. And so you're probably, you're probably right. Now let's, let's point at something else though. I have never seen another artist in the history of art who has this palette ever. What is I've it? I've never seen this palette. Diverse. You mean the it, huge range in this, color? Yeah. And it's the very huge chroma and the very like the, the chromatic choices he's making here are unlike anything that's in Spain, that's in France. I mean, he's just like his own thing. And it, it, I feel like it's a, it, it's a shame that we're not seeing it under candlelight. Cause can you imagine? Oh, all these colors, like? the blues would look more dull under candlelight. Oh, it would be a shame. And the, the figures would look like they were popping out to a little bit like that. The bald head would be popping out. The, mm -hmm. the, all the bright whites would be coming out. You'd see, um, it's I, candlelight on black figures, which you don't see that often has a real is a brilliant choice because you have, um, their faces show up different from people who are whiter. Right. Mm. And so he's, if you look at how he's taken the black boy and then the black magi, who's there or Magus is the singular for that. Um, he's put that, that figure at the brightest light and he's kind of had to highlight him a little bit differently. It's, it's a real, and um, he, he had black um, fellow brothers in his um, monastery where he served. We know that he had um, close relationships with who were probably may have been the model for that Magus that was in this figure that was in this painting that is. And so the you don't see a lot of black figures done in the 17th century, except by Velasquez, who had Juan de Pareja, who was one of his assistants that was also an amazing painter. I just think that, you know, as a as overall choices in this painting, it's yeah, he's he's not an artist that's looked at a whole lot. He's kind of anonymous in the history of art. And there are good reasons, maybe, but there are other reasons why I think artists should look at him for some of the interesting choices he does if yes, anything for this the fabric oh my gosh you That's know what this palette reminds me of nelson shanks oh my gosh yeah, i can see yeah yeah he has a really that. really really diverse wide palette in his paintings yeah okay wow. i've got one i've got one final painting for you one more okay is this it this painting it is yep and this is it this was done by a uh an artist named um rafael mangs so rafael mangs was um he was born in germany but he worked for the royal spanish court in italy and then he moved to madrid and he paints this as one of his final works you can see that there's a lot of cracking in it it's in wood and, and it's kept in this very back corner of the Prado Museum. And to me, it is one of the most beautiful 
adoration of the shepherd's paintings I've ever seen in my life. And my least favorite part, part of it is Mary and the Christ child. My favorite part of it is the upper part with the angels who are circling and the shepherds who are approaching it. And Joseph, who's in the foreground on the left, who's the only one who can see the angels above. And then to, above his shoulder is a self-portrait of Mengs himself, the artist. Right who's here. Who's pointing to the scene. Yep, that's a self-portrait of Mengs, who painted this in his 60s. Hmm. But if you go up close to it, um, Mengs hugely influenced Goya. He hugely influenced a lot of artists of his time. And he's living at a time when it's not as important to be realistic as it is to be um, colorful. Um, Neoclassicism is very important. So there, a lot of the features are idealized and forced to make things look otherworldly and very symmetrical. Mm-hmm. Mings, I've never seen anybody who can make things look like a mix of, of uh, porcelain fakeness and naturalism like he does in a way that always... I don't know why it gets to me so much, Jeff. Nobody paints like this anymore. Look at that shepherd's hand where the light's coming off of Christ and yeah. it's shining through the fingers. And then his forearm, how it's foreshortened. And then his legs, look at his knees. And I wish and, I had those legs. I mean, <laughs> oh, there's some nice legs. I, I wish I did. He's obviously exaggerating how muscular must. Mu- how muscly that shepherd is. And it's kind of almost weird and cartoonish, but it's so satisfying. And then you compare the humans to those angels, which are all smooth and beautiful. And I mean, that, those angels are just little poems. Every one of them is a little poem. Mm. I just am in, I've always been in love with this painting. And I know that it's not very popular to paint like this. And I don't know if it ever will be again, but I feel like we've lost something with this idealized version of the human form that he is so good at. I think this I is know. the process. What do you think? Well, my impression is this is the process where artists use a really refined, smooth grisaille and then uh, stack on layers of glazes in order to bring in the color. And I've noticed as I've been to various museums that artists will often be easy on the glazes with some figures and heavier on the glazes with others. For whatever reason, I don't know why, you'll have one figure that's that the flesh is they've they've managed to get and pile up enough glazes to get the flesh to look really fleshy. And then others you almost see right down to the underpainting. And uh, Uh and I don't I've never known why it works out that way. But that's what it looks like to me. It looks like Mary's almost completely underpainting with just a little bit of glaze uh-huh. on her lips and cheeks. And then this guy is just brought to complete finish. And I, I don't understand me, it. I, pre- I appreciate I it, it, but I don't understand it. Yeah. I wonder if it's because it's a, you know, it's a way of creating depth. That figures in the foreground were kind of brought into the circle of the painting. It's a huge Maybe. painting. This painting is about eight feet tall, 
those vertical lines you're seeing throughout it are from where the wood is starting to crack and bend yeah because it's all on on wood panel um he the his self-portrait is one of the most gorgeous self-portraits right here i've ever seen in person it's so beautiful it really done. is nice it's very naturalistic it almost it, yeah. i think it's the most naturalistic portrait in the whole painting the i think rest you're of right them feel more uh, more like a caricature and his feels which, like very real which just tells you what how much of a choice it was because you have to remember these guys are trying to imagine this moment as if it's almost a dream. They don't want it to look like people they know. They want it to look like types of people that are almost like Alphonse Mucha's um, allegorical figure. These are not meant to be portraits of people. They're meant to be sucked. You're supposed to look at this as if you're sucked into a window of another world and a dream. Not real. It's not the real world. It's an imagined world. That's what I love about and, talking to you, Micah, because you always come at it with this idea that the artist meant to do it. I always come at it from a more practical standpoint as far as the craft is concerned. What I thought, I'm not sure if I'm right, but it's just I find it almost humorous how the difference in our perspective because of our, our different professions. But... I thought, oh, yeah. well, of course his face looks more real because he's the only model that's always available. Oh, he he has all the money in the models in the world. He does. Really? I know this. And I know this is a choice on his part. I know it. Okay. I know it. But isn't that funny, because though? I, know... I always go to the practicality of it. I'm like, yeah. well, yeah, his looks more real because he I only has to look in a mirror. The rest of them, you know, they need to go home or go to work. <laughs> I'm, if you're looking at, at uh, his contemporaries like... Um, Vicente Lopez, or even Jacques-Louis David, all of those guys are doing these almost cartoonish figures. And then in other paint, and that's when they're doing historical or religious or allegorical scenes. But the moment they do a portrait commission of a real person, they start, they make them look very realistic. And they even talk about them when they're talking about making these images as if, Oh, no, 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 no. You have to back off and stop making that person look so real. You need to make them look more like the idealized version of yeah, the Virgin you're, yeah. Mary. You're obviously the idealized right. idealized version. That makes sense. So, hmm. so I mean, this, this is part of what I'm talking about, too, is that we don't, we don't have these idealized versions in our paintings anymore. Mm -mm. We don't do this. And, and I think something's lost a little bit of it because we're so used to you know, maybe our version of it is we look at these Avengers figures in movies that are these these movie stars who, when they're interviewed, they talk about being sewn into their clothes and they talk about um, like having to go on these impossible diets um, where they have to dehydrate themselves for a day while they're doing a scene. So their muscles stick out even more. And then they go back to a, a more natural version of themselves when the filming's over, this is, that's our version of an imagined, idealized world potentially that we, and this is their version of it. Their version of it is like porcelain skin and it's never seen daylight. And, 
and and smoothed edges and he's deliberately contrasting the shepherd's worn muscled body with the porcelain figures in heaven yeah hmm. there are a few artists that still do idealized or i don't know if idealized i suppose they could, you could say idealized or characterized or distorted figures I, I mentioned it in the last podcast with you although i don't know if we posted that podcast but uh we had talked about it before the adam miller is one of those mm. artists that does okay okay he sort of uh goes away from naturalism a little bit but it it's so much harder to do today when everything else in the world is so real i mean video games and movies and yeah. cameras and and it's it feels as an artist as an as a painter of representational things it seems more difficult to settle for uh, a caricature of a face, but maybe yeah, that's the weakness. Maybe that's my own personal weakness rather than cultural. I don't know. I don't think it's a weakness. I just think it's. I just think it's a different taste in different eras. You know. Yeah. Back yeah. off on the image a little bit. One thing I do want to talk about before we finish on this image is I want to talk about his his compositional choices when it comes to color and values and what you think about how he's how he's decided to lead the eye around when it comes to lights darks warms cools it's uh, a, it, i mean uh, and i know it's hard to do on a computer screen versus in yeah, person yeah i i certainly have no criticism you know i'm not one i mean obviously i i'm capable of criticizing other people's art but it has to be like that perspective thing like in my mind it has to be a technical issue with with something like composition it's so subjective so could it be yeah. better i have no idea you know to me composition is very subjective that way i like yeah. the composition i like the way everything points at Christ yeah. and at Mary. Uh, yeah. I like the way he's really subdued every color, but even the reds he's subdued. But but yeah. he focuses all of his attention on this color as far as chroma yeah. is concerned, which is around Mary. That's the only chromatic color in the entire painting. And then takes yeah. one step, one step up in chroma to these reds right here which I'm yeah. sure is not a coincidence because if you think that the, the classic colors in history of religious paintings, red and blue, I mean, you see Christ in red and blue yeah. all the time symbolizing, correct me if I'm wrong, sacrifice and royalty. Yeah. Um, that's, that's yeah. Yeah. So to me, that seems really intentional and it's this nice little triangle that he's created with those chromatic colors that. Yeah. I love the here. I love all the hand gestures. I love his hand that's going back, but also across, and then the angel which is coming forward and reaching towards the middle. You can draw a line almost directly to their hands. The shepherd's hands that are coming to the middle, the feet of the angels which are kind of of, of the one on the left that's framing the the scene in one area, the hand of the figure that's behind Mary's head which is also a through line hand. Oh, I didn't just see like, that one. They're they're just a lot of little subtle. If you were to if you were to draw lines throughout this piece and pull up how he's framing 
the narrative and drawing your eye around with highlights mm -hmm. on the tips of the fingers of one figure Whoops. in the background, the tips of the fingers um, of the uh, the the staff of that figure on the far right, um, and and the uh, right here and the and and uh, and and the triangle and how that leads over through the back into the face of the other shepherd as a staff. It's lots of little subtle compositional choices that he's making. It's it's a painting that if you had to make this into a black and white, it would still work, I think, because you could you could see all of those lines and value choices that were being made. It's even if it's as complicated as it is with, I don't know, there may be 15, 20 figures in there on some level, mm -hmm. and it still is simplified enough with yeah. the choices, the overall choices. He's he's really he's really a brilliant painter. And at the same time, if you were to compare this to the cheesiest Christmas images that you and I grew up with on Christmas cards, those are a pale version of the kind of, of, of this image. This is the master version of cheap Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can I want to make a couple more comments as I'm as I'm listening to you. I'm thinking about some other things. As a narrative painter, I feel like he's done some really sophisticated things that I find hard to do. He's come yeah. up with just some great solutions and some great candid unpredictable additions like this dog coming in right here. Yeah. There's no need for a dog. But what it does no, is it doesn't it's not part of the story at all. I mean, it, there's no dog in the Christmas story. But what it does is it makes it a familiar scene or a familiar place that we can relate to better because we all know dogs. We're all comfortable with dogs. It makes it more in a way by bringing a dog in, it almost makes the whole scene more human, ironically, by bringing a dog in. Yeah. And then the other thing is he yeah. like he creates this secondary light source right here just to figure out yeah. how to illuminate these figures in the background and just to get enough yeah, light on them so yeah. that they're part of the painting and they don't disappear into the shadows, which I think was really smart. And he's, he's got them enough there that they're there, but not so much that they distract from the central focus either. Yeah. Which and, is a real yeah. coup. It's a real coup. And I also like how, I don't know how he pulled it off. I guess, I guess it, it's pretty obvious he just didn't do it and it somehow it works, but he didn't make Christ glowing with all these rays of light coming off the way it's often done. He just suggested that Christ is glowing by making him full value and then having the light in all the right places on all the surrounding figures, suggesting that the light is coming yeah. from him. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think of that. I didn't yeah. think of that. Yeah, it's pretty smart painting. I also painting like some details like this little thing. I keep looking at this. Oh, I do too. The, that's a that's a sensor that they would have put um, in a Catholic church. They put the uh, the uh, incense that they go up and down mm. the aisles in, and so he's suggesting that that uh, that Joseph. You can see Joseph, who's sitting in the foreground, is looking up at the angels. He's the only one who can see them. Is and, that where he's looking? Um, he's not looking at this guy. He's looking up. I guess he is. It's hard to tell in this picture. He is looking picture. up. We, 
it's it's clearer in the real in the in yeah. the image, and it kind of makes you wonder if you can if he can smell them, and that's why he's looking up because he can smell oh, the yeah. incense coming out of the sensor. It's it's uh, I, it's to me this this painting. Um, whenever I think of Christmas, I think of this painting because Christmas is this time where we're supposed to um, take ourselves out of the drudgery of everyday life into something a little more fantastical mm -hmm. and, and imagined. And we're encouraged to do that. We're supposed to think of things as being, our life is heightened in a way through Christmas, just like this painting is. It's not, and, and we're supposed to be Joseph who notices the angels when nobody else is noticing them, right? Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be noticing that miracle in our lives. I know that sounds cheesy, but I embrace it fully because I think that's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about looking at the miracles of our everyday life. Albert Einstein said there are two ways of looking at the world. Nothing is a miracle and everything is a miracle. And I, and I think everything is a miracle at Christmas. And that's where you get a painting like this that reminds you that, that there are things in life that we don't see and that we don't understand. And at Christmas, we try a little harder to see them and it's weird and it doesn't always work and it's cheesy and we love it anyway. <laughs> well, Christmas <laughs> is my favorite holiday. And if my viewers are not religious people, maybe we can just look at the positive things happening in this crazy world during the Christmas season and try and focus on the good for a month. Yeah. Well, and even if you're not into Christmas, these are the, this is what, what Dungeons and Dragons and magic and fantasy art is about too, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. is what Miyazaki films are about. The, the Studio Ghibli of, of things are a little more fantastical at Christmas. And we should, even if we're not religious, we should, we should take on a, on a visual and artistic level, we should take a cue from artists and try and make things a little bit more about that fantasy miracle side, I think, of mm -hmm. life. That's what I think. It's good I'm gonna advice. stick to it. Good advice, Micah. Hey man, thanks again for your generosity. That was a Christmas present to all of us. I really, oh, really appreciate it. You're welcome. That. Merry, Merry Christmas, Jeff. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends, and if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.